This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. And we're coming up on the Feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, and if you have to choose, and I think everyone does, you have to choose a favorite apostle. For me, I'm kind of caught up between St. John the Beloved and St. Thomas the Apostle. I love St. John the Beloved because he is the beloved disciple, the one who rested his head on the chest of Jesus, the one who is with him all the time, the one who talks about uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. He talks about abiding in that Word and gives us these wonderful things that the other evangelists don't give us in the Gospel writings. But St. Thomas, St. Thomas is the one who didn't get to see the first uh, encounter with the risen Christ as Jesus came through the locked doors. And, and he came back and they were all excited. And, um, and he said, I'll, I'll believe what you believe when I have seen what you have seen. Right? He didn't ask for anything extra. He asked to see the same scars that the other apostles had already seen. And, and yet he didn't believe. And so he gets, I think, a bad rap for that doubt because I think it's a very human doubt that any of us would likewise tend to have. But when he does see the risen Christ one week later, he, and, and Jesus offers him those, those signs, the, the nail prints and the scar in his side, he falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. He recognizes in that moment the glory of the resurrection and his whole world is upended. And so as I was thinking about what to talk about, I'm on vacation with my family. We're out in Colorado Springs. What better conversation to have than to talk with Sherry Waddell at the Catherine of Siena Institute, siena.org. Catherine, thank you for being, I called you Catherine. Sherry, thank you for being with us today. Well, that's the greatest compliment anybody's ever paid me. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> most, most welcome. So it, you wrote a, just the seminal book on evangelism, Forming Intentional Disciples, available on our Sunday Visitor Press. In the opening segment, you tell a story that I'm going to ask you to tell again that, that uh, brought you to a place where you began to realize what these threshold conversations were, where you were going through a called and gifted um, interview with someone and were having a little bit of a difficulty really connecting with them. So share that story sure. with us. Um, I was interviewing a actually a diocesan leader who was the leader of a very visible uh, diocesan uh, organization. And she was sent to me because she was a leader. But as I listened, the, the point of the called and gifted discernment interviews is that you listen to people's stories and you hear patterns in their stories that may indicate the presence of a charism that is a way that they've been supernaturally empowered by God for the sake of someone else. And so I was trying to listen to her stories and there were no stories. There were no details. And in this process, the Holy Spirit's in the details. Right. And so finally... I didn't know what to do. In desperation, I asked her a question I'd never asked anyone before, which was, could you just briefly describe to me your living, your sort of your journey with God so far in your life or your living relationship with God? And I wasn't laying a trap, really. I mean, it really was, I was thinking charism, 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 because we know that typically these gifts don't start to manifest in people's lives until the point when their faith becomes personal and they're starting to ask, what does God want of me? 
So I was I was just looking for that turning point in her life. And then I knew I would just concentrate on her experience since then. That's all I was doing. I was cutting to the chase. But she went silent. She thought for a moment. And then in a very brisk, sort of matter-of-fact way, she said, well, I don't have a relationship with God. Hmm. And I thought, no. <laughs> I mean, I was so floored. I thought, no way, absolutely no way. You would not be doing this. You're the leader of X and Y. And why on earth would you be you know, putting that much time and energy into something if, you, if this wasn't flowing out of a personal faith, out of a relationship with God? And I, I set out to find it because I figured, um, see, in those days, I was still afraid I was um, using Protestant language. Yeah. I would slip into Protestant ease and then the Catholics couldn't understand me. So I figured I had just asked the wrong question, but I knew it had to be there. I was going to find it. Right. And I spent the whole hour. And at the end of the hour, I realized she told me the truth in the first place. And I was the one unwilling to listen. It was the big aha. And I went out of that and I went to Father Mike Phones, who was my co-director, and said, that was the most amazing conversation we've ever had. I think maybe we should ask that question more often. Yeah. And we started to. It became a normal part of the interview process. And I am telling you, that's how we learned what I wrote about informing intentional disciples. Mm -hmm. um, it's just person after person when they felt safe. There was just private. It was just between us. The most stunning thing would come out of people's mouths, even major leaders. At all levels, and I'm not, and not just lay people either. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've talked to priests, religious, deacons, bishops, who have told me similar stories over the, you know, yeah. in different places. So, and as we're going through this this demographic shift, we have seen, uh, I think, the fruit of um, the fruit of the spiritual life that's come before us. We've got this uh, this rise of the nuns, as they say, the N-O-N-E-S, those who, uh, who when they're asked, what faith do you belong to, they would say, none. Um, I think you and I both know people who have been in the church and have had an experience and they've, uh, with the church, they've received the sacraments, they've gone through this process of living the life according to the, the structures and the mandates that maybe their parents set on them, but they never really saw that life or that relationship with Christ. And so they've left the church, either for the Protestant church or to become a nun, N-O-N-E. Um, how do we get to that place where, like Thomas, we go from merely following Christ for three years and doing all of the stuff and really doing whatever he says to a place where we come into this supernatural knowledge of who Christ is and who we are to him? That, well, you're asking me the big question that we've been grappling with for ever since I had that conversation. Um, and the, the, simple, the short, not, there's no simple answer, right. but the, the shorter version um, is that we have to, most people in our experience, um, I talk about a sort of series of sort of spiritual developmental stages that we call the thresholds in forming intentional disciples. That where most of our people, most Catholics start, even practicing ones at a very early stage, and then moving toward to the point where they, uh, kind of like Thomas, have, are becoming intentional disciples, mm -hmm. okay, of Jesus. Um, and so many of even our, our people born and raised in the faith, who went to church with their parents, etc., who have even been active as adults, when you actually talk to them 
Um, it's stunning. Some of them don't even believe in a personal God. Yeah. I mean, I've had lots. Increasingly, we know, since I wrote uh, For Me Intentional Disciples, we've learned a lot. And I've had people walk up to me and said, you know, I was raised in a practicing family. Um, but the truth is, all the way through my childhood, I thought of God as a distant Rule, nasty rule enforcer who didn't like me and didn't like my family. Mm -hmm. Now, Jesus was my friend. Jesus right. was a buddy. I'm like, wait a second. So God, the Father, I guess, is off there being a nasty rule enforcer. Jesus is somewhere else. She said, "He's." I said, how could, how could Jesus be your buddy if God is this nasty person? She said, well, that's simple. Jesus wasn't God. Hmm. So what we're discovering for a lot of people raised in the church, and it's the number, the percentage is actually stunning. We've actually gone to parishes and done nothing but listen to people's stories and ask them to tell us their whole journey and ask the question, where is Jesus in this? And about half of them came up with a very similar scenario. Yeah. Um, so they actually discovered, if you will, that he was God as adults. They'd left in their teens often, and went, were gone for years and then slowly came back. And it was a whole rediscovery who the Father is, who Jesus is. I mean, a total rediscovery of the entire Trinity on many levels. Um, so people people will show up in, in our parishes. They'll attend Mass. They'll do things with us if, they, if there's some kind of bridge of trust in place for them. Right. And it doesn't have to be that they trust God. They could trust you. Just your best friend, their best friend goes to that church. And so mm -hmm. they go, they like Father. They, there's something about being Catholic that they identify with the culture. It's my grandmother's, you know, tradition, whatever. There's a positive reason for them being there, but they never move beyond that. Yeah. And we tend to presume if your body is here, your heart is here, your head is here, or you wouldn't be here. And that, right. unfortunately, is not the case. Well, I think we're going to find that um, displayed more clearly after the pandemic as people have gone uh, 16, 17 months without having the daily, the weekly faith as part of their life. And for some of them, they don't miss it because they haven't gone beyond that that bridge of trust. Yeah. Um, so we, we have to begin thinking in line of these thresholds and where people fall within that, whether they are uh, just someone who trusts, whether they're someone who's curious or open or seeking, or whether that person is living a life of mm -hmm. discipleship. Yeah. As a parent and as a former DRE, this is something that, that I think about a lot, Sherry, um, because we often think about forming intentional disciples, or at least I have, in terms of adults. We're going to go out and we're going to get our RCIA people. We're going to take them through that. We're going to have these relationships with people we work with. But far too long, our churches have educated our children and not catechized them, right? That we've, we've made education the totality of catechesis rather than looking at it as a, a liturgical lived experience and an introduction to the person of Christ. Um, and so I look at my children who are coming up, and one of them's now a teenager, and I, I'm trying to be really attentive to where are they in these thresholds. I know because they live in my house uh, and because they have a willingness to go to Mass that there's at least a bridge of trust, even if that bridge of trust is just with me. Um, but let's talk about what is the process of moving someone from one of these thresholds mm -hmm. and accompanying them and cultivating them into these deeper thresholds into intentional discipleship. Well, d don't put down having a bridge of trust with your parents because yeah. having a bridge of trust, you know, with your parents uh, means that you trust not just your parents, but you also trust at some level their faith, the mm -hmm. goodness of it. 
And that's incredibly important. So um, don't take that for granted by any yeah. means. But um, but you're right. If people, if a child comes along willingly, not not sullenly, not in you know right resignation because they have no choice, um, but willingly or or even enthusiastically, there's a bridge of trust there. But the issue is the real the, what we're seeing, and I'm hearing this everywhere, all over the place. Um, you know, people, both Protestant and Catholics, devout Christian parents that I know of are seeing their children walk away very dramatically, very quickly, and very, very early. So mm-hmm. we're talking age 10, age 13, just suddenly they seem to be kind of going with the tide, if you will, and then mm-hmm. boom, they're gone. Um, and so the question that I think very early on, one of the things I've noticed in the evangelical world where I grew up, it was normal for young children to be expected to make a decision to follow Christ. Yeah, uh, You knew whether or not you had accepted Jesus, that would be our language, accepted right. Jesus as your Savior. I did it as a child, and we used to talk about it among ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and you'd say, oh, I did that when I was six, and I did that when I was, you know, when you it tell It almost your... becomes a competition, right? Oh, well, I, I did that when I was three. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I'd, I don't think I ever heard anybody at three, but there's no reason it couldn't happen. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah— but in but Catholics do not give their children clear, safe, unpressured, mm-hmm. positive opportunities to actually make a choice. Yeah. They presume you'll just you'll just go along with the tide, you'll just absorb it f- through your pores, you know, from your parents, and bingo, you'll show up as a practicing Catholic, and that absolutely doesn't happen mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and especially for kids, they will not even make it through high school anymore. Yeah. Uh, if they haven't, so um, I, I have uh, one one guy I know who's a really brilliant evangelist. He was um, he took the thresholds and he adapted them for five and six year olds. He had a vacation Bible school he was doing oh, wow. for five and six year olds. He had a great little curriculum. He said I didn't change it; it was good stuff. He says, but I thought through the whole week in light of five and six year olds moving through the thresholds. He said, okay, what might it look like for a five year old? Mm-hmm. And they can do it; it's yeah. possible a five-year-old to meaningfully, age-appropriate, you know, move from trust into curiosity about Jesus, mm-hmm. okay? And openness to Jesus. Um, could a six-year-old drop their net, i.e. make some kind of meaningful, conscious decision to follow Jesus? Um, yes. Yeah. Um, and so he said we ended up with um, 10 minutes of adoration and a little procession at the end. He said all week long the kids were coming up and saying, I love Jesus. Jesus is living in my heart. Yeah. Um, and But he said they were so excited when they came home that their parents got alarmed. And so the parents started texting and emailing and calling the pastor and saying, what have you done to my child? You know, what, right. what, what was this? And so he had to send out a pastoral letter to the parents of the Vacation Bible stu- School students explaining that it is perfectly normal for kids to come out of Vacation Bible School loving Jesus. Yeah. Um, now, everyone's going to want to know if that's available for, for... No, it's not packaged, okay? This, I mean, this was a guy who, he just took what he was already right. doing, he understood the basic process, and yeah. he got creative, okay? Yeah. Um, but but we can do that. And I think as parents, then it's really important that we break the silence. And what we mean by that is, they need not only to see you praying, and I don't mean just a church, I mean like right. on your own. I hear that a lot. 
I saw my parents praying. I saw my father would pray on his knees at night. I would mm-hmm. see him by the bed. That sort of thing made an impression. Um, we know what makes a difference between a child who's raised as a Christian and who, when they're a young adult, comes emerges as a practicing serious Christian. Mm-hmm. There's four basic things that happen. One, they have had an experience of the presence of God and they have seen answered prayer. So they need to see you praying. They need to see you talking about answers to prayer. They need to have prayed themselves and seen answers to prayer, have experiences of the presence of God, both in prayer, maybe in adoration, in you know various things. Okay, the par- and you as parents and their older siblings also can talk about this like it's mm-hmm. normal. Um, and so they grow up in it. That's one. Two, they have a chance to talk about the real questions. inside the Christian community, which means inside their family, Mm -hmm. without anybody freaking out, okay? Um, And so however wild those questions may be, three, they have a chance to hear Jesus' story from many, you know, over and over again and wrestle with it in depth. They know not just, yes, they read Bible stories, you know, in the books and all that you give them, but in addition to hear it, maybe their parents tell the story in different contexts, yeah. to act like the story is real and that they're using the story as a guide, that they're that this is a reality and we're living it, you know, and they see that as living and they have a chance to wrestle with that. And the fourth thing is they have parents or older adults around them who model this in a compelling way. It's living. I want to go back to one of these things you said of... Um allowing them to ask the difficult questions because we as parents we hear our kids ask something that we feel is above their level or they're not quite age appropriate for and we kind of flip out we we get a little bit anxious and and the temptation is to give them a trite answer and shut that down and move on but in truth this might be the only opportunity we have to answer that question because if we model for them that there are some questions that are too pokey and we don't want to deal with. And this goes not only for our children, but for anyone we're talking with. Mm -hmm. If they bring up a question and they're in that curiosity stage and we shut down the question and won't even examine it, or we come up with, um, you know, a real quick rote answer. Oh, well, look, it says here in this book, therefore it must be true. um, Rather than Mm -hmm. allowing ourselves to feel the discomfort of the question and slowly walk through it, um, we could lose the opportunity to answer any questions ever again. And I think maybe, and if you and if you don't, uncertain, if you don't know, maybe it's a question you never thought of, yeah. which it could very well be. You know, it, that's fine. You just mm-hmm. say, you know, that's that's a fantastic, really interesting question. I don't know exactly, but let's explore that together. Let's go look together. And I think I don't know is one of the most powerful answers we can give to anyone. Um, and I don't know, and let's figure it out together. Because it, it pulls us out of the, well, I'm the expert of everything and I know, and into a, a, a companion and, and a mutuality there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that means, yeah, you're in a sense, you're, you are treating them like an equal, which is kind of a big mm-hmm. thrill, you know, um, for that moment. And, uh, but it's, but yeah, I think, I think you're right that um, it's not that we're going to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And I know people, f- I, you hear this over and over again. Well, I can't, I can't share my faith because I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. I don't have the catechism memorized. I don't have whatever right. they, they think is necessary. Right. Uh, none of those things are necessary, of course. Um, but what the most powerful thing is to simply 
if you are wrestling in your own life with real issues, to be able to talk out of that mm-hmm. in a way that's real, they'll know. If you, if you talk like you're really in a relationship with God, they'll know. Yeah. If you trust the goodness of God, they'll know. And it'll say to them, Dad trusts the goodness of God. Mom trusts the goodness of God. Okay, maybe I can trust the goodness of God. Yeah. You know, um, that sort of thing. If they see you pray like you're really talking to a, a loving personal God who is actually listening yeah. and can respond. Um, and if you talk about maybe God's leading, you know, when you feel inspired by the Holy Spirit, when you have a sense that God, you know, like spoke to me and said this, um, you know, just in very simple ways, not putting on, not making a big deal about right. it, just matter of fact, daily stuff, because this is daily for you. Right. One of the things we love to do as a family, um, when we go, we're on a road trip right now, and when we go on road trips is to uh, to find the very Catholic places and, and visit them. So uh, there's a new book from Ave Maria Press. I'll have to find the title of it, but it's basically just a kind of Route 66 things of, yes. of shrines and of oh. places where miracles were, where you can go right. and, and visit um, as you're going along your road trip. So you've got to stop somewhere. Um, one of the things we did here in Colorado Springs, we, you know, we do the tourist things. We went to the Garden of the Gods. Absolutely. And then on the way back, we stopped at Citadel Mall at the, the Franciscan Friars, have a, an adoration chapel set up mm-hmm. right there in the middle of the mall. Um, and so we sat there for a while, and I noticed there was a line outside, and I said to my kids that were the, the appropriate age, there's confession out there if you want. You don't have to go, but it's available. And all four of my confession-age children got up on their own accord and went and stood in line. And I was Fantastic. just shocked. But I, I was thinking as, I, as I'm meditating on this, as they're going through the line and I'm sitting in adoration, what if we were too busy to make this stop? What if this was something that didn't make our list of, of stops to make? Because um, it's just a mall and the kids were really upset because there was a fair outside, a carnival that we weren't mm-hmm. aware of. And they were very upset that we weren't going to get to go and ride the fancy rides. Nevertheless, we went in, we made the extra trip, we took the time. And it, and it gave them an opportunity mm-hmm. to respond on their own mm-hmm. um, that was just a beautiful thing to see. Well, yeah. And the fact that they, I mean, if they really felt free and that they all chose to, that's mm-hmm. a, that is really impressive. I mean, that's significant. I'm sure there might have been some peer, some peer pressure <laughs> okay. of, oh, well, they're going, I guess I should go too. Sure. But, but it wasn't compelled from above. Yes. So. Yes. That's great. That's great. Yeah. It's... Um, I think all those things, what we hear over and over again, ugh, I can't tell me parents have told me this. I mean, or the the, pe- the kids who grew up into be non-believing adults. And I said, like the, the guy who came up to me at an evangelization conference, out of the blue. To, first break, he walks up to me and said, I, I did not know I could have a relationship with God until I read your book last month. Wow. And I'm like, okay, this isn't invitation-only evangelization conference. This is not like a parish. This is like, you know, there's 200 of us in this ballroom and and I'm floored because he he just comes up no introduction, nothing. And I said, "Um, well, help me understand, like, why do you think that was? He comes from a good practicing Catholic family. His family were really engaged. They were 
at Mass. They were active. He grew up in the church, and he was in full-time ministry himself in the church. So this is a guy who really cares. He's a good guy. He's not a bad Catholic. He's a good guy. He really cares about the church, but he said, we never talked about the possibility of relationship with God in home I literally didn't know. Mm-hmm. He was in his, I'm guessing, 50? Yeah. Okay. Um, and now I've heard very similar things over and over and over again from people that said, we didn't talk at home. We just showed up. We fulfilled our obligations. We went to church. Or as one person said to me, she said, yes, I was at church every Sunday with my family. I went to Mass. I had First Communion, the whole nine yards. She said, but I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't even certain. I knew Jesus was a good guy who'd done something important, but I had no idea what. Hmm. Okay. And again, it was nobody talked at home. We just fulfilled our obligation, and then there was silence. Wherever there is silence, what we've heard so far, and I'm not saying this is universal, I'm just saying this is our experience so far. They tell us they thought of God as distant, unloving, uncaring, the complete opposite of what we want our children to be picking up because the parents weren't comfortable talking about it at home, and probably it wasn't real for them either. Mm -hmm. But they obeyed the rules, they fulfilled the obligation. But that's not enough anymore. Well, it's the whole story of, um, well, when you, cu- when you cook a pot roast, you always cut the last uh, inch off of it. And, and then the, gra- the daughter does that, and she knows that when you cook a pot roast, you cut the last inch off. And then the granddaughter says, why do we do this? Well, I don't know. We've always done this. Go ask your grandmother. And finally, they get to it, and she said, well, my pot was uh, an inch too short. I don't know why you do it. So we we have this ability to pass on ritual and and the way things are done, and eventually, a certain number of generations past, there's going to come the question, why do we do this? And if there isn't a good and solid answer, it's just going to go away. Yeah. And these days, it almost certainly will. The difference is, in the past, the larger culture was more supportive. Right. Now the larger culture is not supportive. And I can almost guarantee you, unless it's a very exceptional child with a very exceptional experience, maybe from other sources mm-hmm. in, in their life, um, they are probably at least going to take a temporary vacation right. from the faith, even if they eventually come back as adults. Now, we've talked to a lot of people who've come back as adults, but it's a long journey back. Yeah. Um, and it's not a guaranteed journey. It's not a guaranteed journey by any means. We're talking today with Sherry Waddell, the co-founder and executive director of the Catherine of Siena Institute. You can find out more information about them by going to siena.org. They've got multiple resources there, including forming intentional disciples, becoming a parish of intentional disciples, and fruitful discipleship, all available on our Sunday Visitor Press, and the Called and Gifted Workshop and the Ananias Workshop, available through the Catherine of Siena Institute. Go to Sienna.org and be a part of the ongoing conversation by going to Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Tell me the story of your journey through the thresholds from trust to curiosity to openness to seeking and finally to being a missionary disciple. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to my conversation with Sherry. Right after this, you're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Sherry Waddell of the Catherine of Siena Institute. They are the, the makers, the founders of um, the Called and Gifted Workshop, Ananias Workshop, and much more. Uh, you can read Sherry's book. It's a fantastic book, Forming Intentional Disciples, published by Our Sunday Visitor Press. There's now a whole suite of books that go along with that, including workbooks that you could go through with other uh, people in your parish. But if you've not yet read Forming Intentional Disciples, I want you to go and get it right now. Get it on Kindle, go get a, a physical copy, read through it, and maybe give yourself a little bit of accountability. Read through it with someone else from your parish. Uh, and take the time to have these conversations because, one, it's going to increase your own faith. It's going to give you the tools that that you need to make a difference in the kingdom and help you to begin to understand your place in it. Sherry, thank you again for being with us. It's great to be here. So we have these five thresholds that everyone goes through on their way to conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've talked about them before. You've got them in the book. I, I should make it clear. I can't say... These are. This is the way people go through now in the mm-hmm. 21st century in the West. Okay. Okay. It's not the way necessarily people always went through, yeah. exactly, because the culture has changed so much. What I wanted to do uh, is to ask you if you had some insight into your own journey, what these threshold points looked like for you oh, as yeah. you came either into faith the first time as an evangelical or, if you prefer, into your life as a Catholic. Sure. Um, of course, I was raised uh, as a fighting fundamentalist yeah. in southern Mississippi. So, you know, the real thing, the real thing. Um, <laughs> not a northern version. Uh, um, but, uh, but yes, I uh, had had a, a conversion as an undergrad, a major. That was my adult. I had a childhood conversion. Mm-hmm. I had an adult that was then reaffirmed as an adult, a young, very young adult, uh, but uh, as an undergrad. And then... Um, so I, when I first, the, you know, so the issue, I didn't know anything about the thresholds, of course. And right. I, I grew up in, the, in a remnant, in a, I was in a bubble. I grew right. up in a, you know, a, a subculture um, that was saturated with religion. So it was a different journey for me, I think. Um, but when I, by the time... I was in college, and especially since we grew up to be, I was raised anti-Catholic, intensely so. You know, the church was the whore of Babylon and yeah. in league with the devil and on and on and on. Okay, and I lived two doors from St. Clair's Church, and I regarded it honestly as the anteroom of hell. And as a, I can remember I was 10 or 11, running by one day barefoot as I was, usually in summer, and I... I, for some reason, impulsively, I opened the door to look inside oh. because, you know, it was one of those things, you know, the, the evil, see what's there. And I looked inside and it was all dark except there were candles burning and candles burning in the darkness was clearly a sign of demonic evil because, of course, <laughs> I went to very plain churches with no stained glass windows and the light just comes in. It's all very right there in front of you. Right. And I thought, I, you know, and I slammed the door and I ran away. I said, it's all true. Okay. Um <laughs> You know, so that sort of thing. But uh, so the idea of becoming Catholic, my bridge of trust uh, that I had, and the more I meditated on it, the more extraordinary it seems. But it's the only way God could have gotten my attention. As an undergrad, I had had this adult conversion. I was looking for a place to pray um, during this. This is the fall of my junior year, I think. And I was just looking for a place to pray. And there was a Gothic church a few blocks off campus that I'd never been in, and I 
Protestant churches were closed. This one was open. I don't know why. I walked inside and I felt a presence of God that I had never experienced before. Now, I uh, was a very serious about the practice of the presence of God, a prayer form oh, where yeah, you're yeah. very attentive to the presence of God. Which, of course, was by Brother Lawrence, who Brother was a Lawrence, Catholic. Brother Lawrence, who was a Catholic, right. yes, a friar. Um, yes, he wrote it in the 17th century, but I was not that aware of all that. Right. I just knew about this idea. I'd been exposed. I was a, a Quaker, and I'd been exposed that way. And uh, I walked across, and I knew instantly mm-hmm. that this was a presence of God that I that was different than what I had experienced in other places. And I, you know, and I took, that was, that was definitive for me because that was my focus. So not that I decided to become Catholic because that was still unthinkable, but I started to pray in that place Mm -hmm. because the presence was there. I had no idea what it was. The name of the church was Blessed Sacrament. (laughs) Did I have the slightest idea what that, the language meant? Of course not. And even if you explained it to me, I wouldn't have believed you because it like, I mean, everything in my gut would have said, no, you know, that's somehow that's idolatry, you know, Mm -hmm. and sort of thing. Um, But nevertheless, I just kept, I would go there and pray. And my friends kept saying, if you don't stop doing that, you know, you're going to become Catholic. And I said, oh, the stupidest thing anybody's ever said. Um, But uh, slowly, yes, in fact, uh, what happened is, you know, I'd see things and I'd read things and slowly some of the defenses fell and then one day there was this was a dominican parish it is in fact the dominican parish that eventually where we founded the institute but that was years later and so in this dominican parish there was a statue of catherine of siena yeah though i had no idea it was just a young woman and a sign that said catherine of siena no clues who she was but by this time i'd read enough of the stuff they leave in the vestibules to know that catholics she probably was a saint, whatever that meant. But that was a good, it was a good person, a really outstanding Christian, as far as I could tell. And they believed that they could pray for you. And spont- this was an experiment for me. Just at the spur of the moment, I said, hey, Kate, <laughs> you're a young woman. You get it. I said, um, you know, God, like if this is, you know, somehow detracting from your glory in any way, I don't mean anything bad by so you just let me know and I'll stop. But But Kate, if it's okay... And you could pray for me. Could you pray that I could figure out what God wants me to do? Because I really want to know what my call is. Oh, well, see, that's your problem right there. That's why we have everything now. <laughs> that's Catherine it. of Siena. That's it's all it. her fault. It's all Kate's fault. And um, and and then the next moment I found I like I looked at the ceiling I, like God was up there. Don't, don't even ask. You're just thinking, what are you doing? And I said, No, oh God, if there's anything to this Catholic thing, I'm open. Huh. I had walked across the threshold of openness without having any idea such a thing existed. Yeah. But I had walked into a whole new spiritual realm and didn't even know it. Um, and in my experience, and certainly we've seen it um, in our work, that whenever someone seriously and you know just tells God, if you're there and you can hear me yeah. and you care, I'm open. I, I, you know, I'd like more or something god always responds in these incredible ways and that so my bridge of trust was established when i had that mystical experience i walked through into the stage of openness with catherine Mm -hmm. um you know it's yeah and only later when i 
came across the thresholds, did I understand what had happened? It's those little prayers that we think are insignificant, that we didn't plan, that we didn't put a lot of effort into, that we just, they are literally a cry of the heart that God just jumps right on and says, oh, I've been waiting for that. Absolutely. And now I've had a chance to hear these stories all over the place, um, out of the blue, a young, uh, a young uh, lay leader in uh, another country. Uh, I was telling, talking about the prayer of openness, and he said, "I did that when I was eight years old." Turned out he'd been raised in a completely non-Christian, non-even theist, Asian religious background. Yeah. Okay, no God at all in it. He said, "I started to pray that when I was eight years old on my own, just yeah. privately." And he was finally baptized at 20. And now he's a major leader in the Catholic Church in his country. I think at eight, so I grew up in the Methodist Church. And at eight years old, I started praying the prayer the, the, known colloquially as the, the prayer of St. Francis. Ah. And there are, there are these little kind of seeds for you um, with the, the practicing the presence of God, for, for ah. me with the, um, the prayer of St. Francis, that there are doors into the transcend- transcendentals, the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and uh, as I said, we've heard a number of, even the priest that was uh, hauling me around Britain the summer before COVID hit, he, he said, I did that when I was 11. I mean, we're, and we all, the thing is, like you said, mm-hmm. it was, we thought it was entirely private. We probably thought we were a little bit crazy that hardly anybody else had ever done anything like this, but yeah. it was just one of those little cries of the heart, ex- spiritual experiments. But I have never known God not to respond to that. Well, and so if you're listening and you're not sure what to make of all this, this would be a great opportunity to to just pray that simple prayer of openness. Hey, if God, if you're out there, if you really care about me, if you're really, li- put it in your own words, if you're really out there, if you're really listening, let me know, right? Because God will find a way to let you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. He always responds. He responds to the cry of the heart of the person, mm-hmm. to their hunger, to their disposition. Your your first story, um, I love, because I have a friend of mine who came into the church right about the same time I did, uh, a few days, a few weeks before I did, because she actually came in at vigil, and I was working in the Protestant church, so I came in three weeks after vigil to get my church through Easter. Um, and she tells the story. She was a nanny, and she uh, was nannying for these Catholic kids and was picking them up from school and somehow walked into the Adoration Chapel beforehand or afterward, walked into the Adoration Chapel, felt the presence of God and said something along the lines of, well, dang it, now I have to... Now I have to pay attention to this because the presence of God for her was so tangible in that place that she could no longer just deny it and and push it off and say this is nothing. Now there has to be some curiosity and some exploration as to what is this thing that I just experienced. And one of the actually one of the great great stories comes from uh, the 1920s in France. Um, and I'm trying to I can't quite remember his last name. First name is Andre, but. Uh, basically, this young man who was the son of the pre- the head of the Communist Party in the whole of France. He grew up in the only village in France that had no Catholic church in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like an atheist. It was like a God-free zone. It was a little right. atheist heaven. Um, at twenty, he had a Catholic friend who was trying to give him books to read and stuff like right. that. And he was 
he said, I'm going to, I'll go out to dinner with my friend and tell him to stop with the books. Right. I, d I don't believe any of that stuff anyway. He said, but the friend stopped on the way. He said, I need to run in here and do an errand. Can you just wait for a moment? And so he ran into this building and he got tired of waiting. So eventually he followed him in. He walked into a group of sisters who were singing basically choral it was a choral benediction. It was Eucharistic benediction, and they were singing, okay? Hmm. And the Eucharist was, you know, exposed. They were in adoration. He said as he walked through, he said it was like this. Suddenly, he knew that God existed. And he said, and he suddenly, but I also sensed my own horrible state. Suddenly, just intuitively, hmm. he got it. And he said, but I also realized that the God who who loved me was present mm -hmm. and it just in a flash. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in one single moment. Now the question of course was what was he going to do with that? Cause he had this, it doesn't mm -hmm. force your hand. The right. fact that God gives you this extraordinary experience, this revelation, he now had a choice. Am I going to trust this and go with it? Which right. is what all of us do when we have these experiences or am I going to bolt, right. you know, and say nonsense. Right. Well, six months later, he was baptized in that very chapel. And he went on to become good friends with John Paul II and, you know, wrote about the yeah. story. And he was a very famous uh, Catholic leader in France in the 20th century. And and you just think, he went, he walked in. His head was right. totally atheist. Right. The moment he walked into that chapel, he had this encounter. Mm-hmm. And these phrases that just God illuminated him, gave him actual graces that illuminate, you know, this inspiration. But what was he going to do? I think one of the dangers for us uh, who are attempting to evangelize mm -hmm. is we want to make things happen, right? We want to see fruit. We want to. We don't want to take the time to cultivate and to till and to do all the work that needs to be done. And so I've seen people, Catholic and otherwise, in their attempt to bring people to a knowledge of God— they try to do that revelation of how awful a person you are and you need Jesus, um, but without the, the grace that God provided. Because in that moment where he said, um, this is the awful person you are and the God who loves you is here, we can say that all day long, but when God says it, it's reality instantly. It's not, it's not the knowledge or the words, the God who loves you is here. It is the person of the God who loves you is here and the experience of the God who loves you is here. And remember, he was there because his friend had been walking with him yeah. and talking to him and challenging him and was probably had stopped to pray right. for that dinner. I'm sure he was there in prayer for his friend yeah. at the moment he walked in the door. We don't obviously know all that went into that. Certainly. But, and the sisters were praying because that was part of their ministry, was mm -hmm. Eucharistic adoration for evangelization. Yeah. So there are many factors, but you're right. It, it sometimes, it never happens in a void. Right. And whenever, let's put it this way, whenever I have um, graces reach me, um, or answers to prayer, or especially graces that I don't understand how they reached me, how they got, you know, they just seemed to happen out of the blue, I know someone, somewhere, someone has said yes to God, that someone is praying, mm -hmm. someone, someone's obedience has set mo things in motion spiritually that have then blessed me. 
because their fruit, mm-hmm. in a sense, and the church says, your fruit belongs to me and my fruit belongs to you, mm-hmm. even if we don't know each other. Right. We have no connections, but in the, in the network of grace. The mystical body of the Christ. The mystical body of Christ, we absolutely do. Yeah. And I, so I know someone somewhere said yes. And I always, now I'm trying, always say, and I ask God to bless and thank that person, reward that person mm. for the yes. I, I don't know who they are, and maybe I'll, hopefully I'll find out eventually right. in heaven. But, you know, um, but that's the way it works. And so you and I, you know, we may not, we want to be there. We want to be there at that big moment where we're leading them in some kind of right. prayer where they're committing their lives to Christ. We get all the glory. Yeah, we're just like, oh, I want to see that. I want to be there. But, you know, often it's it's this all the stuff that led up to that moment. Mm-hmm. Your a single conversation you had with them, um, your prayer for them, your act of obedience that set this motion and that motion and that emotion affected this person's life and that person touched that person. Um, you know, and and so you and I our our choices right now to respond to the leading of God, the inspiration of God, um, the obedient to be obedient now. We are sending ripples out into history yeah. that will that will bear fruit for the kingdom in ways you and I cannot begin to to understand, mm-hmm. and we will not understand until we stand at His feet in the last day, and He reveals it to us. And what a day that will be! Until then, we act by faith, and we continue those prayers. We're talking today with Sherry Waddell, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Catherine of Siena Institute, author of the book, Forming Intentional Disciples, uh, Becoming a Parish of Intentional Disciples, and Fruitful Discipleship. All wonderful books. Uh, pick them up. Go through them. These will transform your understanding of evangelization. Sherry, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Tim. It was great. If you missed any part of my conversation with Sherry Waddell or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There's also 10 minutes of extra conversation with Sherry available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And in gratitude, we give extra segments each and every week as well as some other goodies here and there and yon. To learn more, go to OutsideTheWalls.com and click that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. It says support the show hyphen Patreon. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips. Learn more at Verbum.com. Today's reading from Scripture comes from the Responsorial Psalm from a couple of days ago because it fits so well into one part of our conversation. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. When the poor one called out, the Lord heard, and from all his distress he saved him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. Fear the Lord, you his holy ones, for naught is lacking to those who fear him. The great grow poor and hungry, but those who seek the Lord want for no good thing. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. Come, children, hear me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Which of you desires life and takes delight 
in prosperous days. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. That reading comes from um, the responsorial psalm from the 30th, a couple of days ago. But it fits so well into that conversation I have with Sherry about that vulnerable prayer. God, if you're out there, uh, let me know. Um, we know someone like this. Maybe you are this person who just needs to experience the presence of God. You just, in whatever way that can can come about, whether that be an answered prayer, whether that be a mystical experience like, uh, like Sherry talked about, um, this is a prayer that God answers. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. And this isn't just monetary poverty. This is if you, if you feel a, a poverty of spirit, if you feel uh, somehow like you've been cast aside, this is for you. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. And if you're a person who, who feels like you have it all together— and you are working on growing in your faith and working towards uh, being an intentional disciple and then moving on to being a missionary disciple, forming other intentional disciples, then you need to hear this because the Lord hears the cry of the poor. He cares about the person where they are, and we meet them where they are and walk with them to introduce them to, to the beauty and the love of God the Father. Our reading from church history today comes from a homily by, um, by St. Gregory the Great on this story that we talked about at the very beginning with St. Thomas, the apostle. And he says this, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He was the only disciple absent. On his return, he heard what had happened, but refused to believe it. The Lord came a second time, he offered his side for the disbelieving disciple to touch, held out his hands, showing the scars of his wounds, and healed the wounds of his disbelief. Dearly beloved, what do you see in these events? Do you really believe that it was by chance that this chosen disciple was absent? Then came and heard, heard and doubted, doubted and touched, touched and believed? It was not by chance, but in God's providence. In a marvelous way, God's mercy arranged that the disbelieving disciple, in touching the wounds of his master's body, should heal our wounds of disbelief. The disbelief of Thomas has done more for our faith than the faith of the other disciples. As he touches Christ and is won over to belief, Every doubt is cast aside, and our faith is strengthened. So the disciple who doubted, then felt Christ's wounds, becomes a witness to the reality of the resurrection. Touching Christ, he cried out, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Paul said, Faith, the guarantee of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen, it is clear, then, that faith is the proof of what cannot be seen. What is seen gives knowledge, not faith. When Thomas saw and touched, why was he told, You have believed because you have seen me? Because what he saw and what he believed were different things. God cannot be seen by mortal man. Thomas saw a human being whom he acknowledged to be God and said, My Lord and my God. Seeing, he believed, 
Looking at one who was true man, he cried out that this was God, the God he could not see. What follows is reason for great joy. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. There is here a particular reference to ourselves. We hold in our hearts one we have not seen in the flesh. We are included in these words, but only if we follow up our faith with good works. The true believer practices what he believes. But of those who pay only lip service to faith, Paul has this to say. They profess to know God, but they deny him in their works. Therefore, James says, faith without works is dead. That reading comes from a homily on the Gospels by St. Gregory the Great. And this is a challenge for us, for you and me, as we strive to be intentional disciples, to be missionary disciples who go outside the walls, who share our faith with others and invite them into this relationship with a personal God who loves them. This is our challenge, that we allow that faith to be stirred up in us, to stir up the charisms, these gifts of the Holy Spirit given to us to benefit the body of Christ through us, that we would be conduits of that grace, that we who have believed and we who have experienced this personal God who loves us would come to the place of surrender, to fiat, let it be done to me according to thy word, to come to this place where we surrender our own agendas and our own wills over to God the Father and say, here I am, I come to do your will. Here I am, Lord, with all of my faults and frailties and experiences and knowledge, and I lay it at your feet and I say, God, here I am. I come to do your will. Through your Holy Spirit and the charism that you've given me, through baptism and confirmation, help me to be a conduit of your grace for the benefit of your church and for the benefit of the world, answering that prayer that we pray every week and hopefully more often. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you're hearing these words, you know, charism and relationship and all of these things, and it doesn't make sense to you, I want to encourage you first, go pick up Forming Intentional Disciples from our Sunday Visitor Press. Uh, read it. But if you're listening to all this and you're like, okay, um, I don't I don't understand what you're talking about with charisms and, and gifts of the Spirit for the benefit of the body. I, I, what are you talking about? Well, I want to encourage you. Go to Siena.org. That's Siena with one N, Catherine of Siena. Uh, Siena.org. And look up the Called and Gifted Workshop. This workshop is foundational. If you want to know what it is that God wants from you, if you want to know how you can serve God in his kingdom, this workshop and then the, the process that follows after it will help you to understand what gifts the Holy Spirit has given you to serve not only the church but the whole world and through which you will feel most refreshed and most alive. That's the Called and Gifted Workshop from Siena.org. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Eileen Herman and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link and join their numbers. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. 
All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.